0: Well, if you'll turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation, last book in your Bible, we have been moving our way through it, um, and it seemed like we came to almost a screeching halt there a little bit, uh, in chapter 13, but we're now in chapter 14, and uh, we're going to look at a group of people that have (laughs) been on the auction block, so to speak, of interpretation for as long as it's been written, I think. But we're going to try to make better heads of tails of it um, than uh, previous ones. We'll put it like that. Uh, Some have taken this and run wild with it, and we're not going to do that. We're going to take God's Word for what it says and bring it in and apply it. So let me just catch you up to where we are. We uh, have been working our way through the Timeline. I do not have the marker board up here. I appreciate all those people who brought me markers. I have a bucket of markers now. And I should have used the marker board just to use each one of them once because of the poor markers I had last week, apparently. Um, but I don't know that we need it tonight. Uh, hopefully, if you'll listen carefully, I won't. So I don't have the timeline. i don't have lists and stuff for you. But um, I just want to catch up to where we are. Uh, we talked about the events coming into the uh, seven years of God's wrath. That there is a cataclysmic event. And we saw that back way back in chapter 6. And we saw that we are waiting for that cataclysmic event. And we are waiting for something that will tip it to happen. Uh, and we don't have to guess at what that is. We know what it is because God words declared it. In a sense, we've already taught it here. You guys can tell me. What is the last number that needs to be completed before the cataclysmic event that brings what we call the rapture? The last one who will die in the name of Jesus Christ. The last martyr is what God is waiting for. Uh, Remember, they said, how long, how long until you judge the earth? How long is it going to take? And God's answer was, way back there in chapter 6, was, well, when your number is completed. The people he's talking to were those who were martyred for the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were in that unique place in heaven, uh, right below the throne of God. And so we're waiting for that event. That is really the next uh, event, is the sixth seal that is wrapped up with the rapture of the church. But there is also a third event that was correlated with that. So let's go back to chapter 6 and 7, because that's kind of a warm-up for chapter 14. So let's look at chapter 6 and 7. And uh, we were going through the seals, and we talked about the first four seals being four horsemen, and remember that? We said these are not the horsemen of the apocalypse. As we have been describing, they are horsemen of the church age. All these are ongoing activities that are going on during this age. And so false teachers and false prophets, uh, riding the white horses um, that is described there, we have the second horseman, uh, Wars and rumors of wars, right? Yes, the fiery red horseman that takes peace from the earth. and of course, Christ in Matthew 24 told us that um, we would experience wars and rumors of wars in the end is not yet. So wars are typical. Of what we're experiencing during the church age. Um, also, then, we've talked about famine and pestilence, earthquakes in various places. All of these, uh, we don't have every earthquake say, oh, is this, remember, that's not the marker. That's not the event uh, that we're waiting for. We're not waiting for a big famine. We're not waiting for these kinds of events um, that, uh, of large numbers of people g- being uh, dying in a generation. Uh, by unusual circumstances. We're not really waiting for those events. Those are ongoing events that are going to happen throughout the church age. And we have seen that happen throughout the church age just as God's word declared. The fifth seal was the martyrs who were crying out before God. And uh, we can't put them into the future because that would make it kind of strange. They're saying, why aren't you judging? And if we say that this is the future, then God's already judging. So why are they asking the question? And so the martyrs are the church-age people. Here are the people who are being slaughtered because they believe in Jesus Christ. We talked about that this morning, that that is ongoing today. Uh, And every time you hear that newscast or that video of people being slaughtered because they're Christians, um, that should raise your level a little bit of anticipation. One of those times is going to be the last time. And that's what we're waiting for. So we come to the sixth seal, we have this huge cataclysmic event that's just going to hit suddenly. And it's not going to be secret. Everybody's going to know it, right? And so we have huge things. Uh, starting verse 12, uh, we have a great earthquake. We have the sun becoming black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as fig trees dropped as light figs as shaken by a mighty wind. The sky recedes as a scroll. Every mountain and island is moved out of its place. The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come who is able to stand. So here's this big global cataclysmic event that is, from what I understand here, initiated really by some Cosmic events—that is, some some things outside of our atmosphere that are going to be coming in, whether it's asteroid or comet—or um, we have these big events. And uh, I just want to let me. Can I take just a, two minutes aside and talk about uh, when the moon becomes blood and the sun becomes like sackcloth? Um, there's big, big, big stuff about the blood moons. Um, your Baptist bulletin that's coming has a couple articles. Um, They have some good information here. I think they have some weak points too, Uh, very weak points a couple of places uh, that they really can't make that accusation against that position. But uh, one point that that they do bring out and they should really have focused on almost entirely is that um, uh, this blood moon stuff that you hear going around uh, is interesting and I'm not going to completely discount it, but I do want you to understand the Bible doesn't talk about just lunar eclipses. Um, it talks about an event in which there is a certainly a blood moon, which is not, from what I understand this passage, an eclipse. Because it says the sun will be darkened as well. And I never heard anyone talk about the blood suns, because it's not involved in this. Now they're pulling out of a passage in Joel largely. Um, but let me just share with you that when they take one slice of a prophecy that has multiple aspects and they focus on that one as the trigger, um, you need to take it for a grain of, with a grain of salt, right? It's interesting. It has some potential. It's kind of exciting. When we get to September this year. Yeah, I'll be excited. I'll be looking forward to it, but I look forward to it every Feast of Trumpets, um, Every fall, I look forward to something happening. Um, And uh, yes, it it correlates with our national uh, crisis of 9-11. It's going to happen again in that context of 9-11, 12-13, in that range, uh, and it correlates with some other things. But let's uh, recognize that that's not going to be a fulfillment of this prophecy because this is a huge cataclysmic event that involves not just the moon, but the sun, uh, land masses all over, and everyone's going to know about it. And from what I can tell, that's not how the world's responding to the blood moons. Okay? So we find that cataclysmic event. Right after that, we have an important uh, event that doesn't have to do with us so much as another group of people in chapter 7. And that is Israel. Um, and so we're, God's wrath is ready to be poured out, and there's been a suspension of it. In verse 3 it says, Do not harm the earth, the sea, the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And we just got done studying the, the uh, financial or economic means by which the uh, last nation on earth will be controlling global economy, uh, through this number, this mark, this name, uh, on the forehead or the back of the hand. And we see the, the contrast here that they have the mark of the beast, and here these individuals have the mark of God on their foreheads. And uh, so we're identifying them, and these are 144,000, it says, of Israel. We've already studied this passage out, um, but it's going to come to play in chapter 14 in a major way. There are 12,000 from each tribe, so there's only 12,000 Jews. These are all men. Um, Why are there only 12,000 Jews? Jews are technically just of the tribe of Judah. So there's 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe, all men, as we're going to find out. And that have kept themselves pure, and we're going to see that these are going to be set up to form a very special function. So here's this big cataclysmic event. Right before it really lays hold and the wrath of God starts being poured out, these people have to be sealed because something's going to happen immediately afterwards. And that takes us into uh, the last half of chapter 7 where we have this great multitude arriving in heaven that no one could number. Um, And we say, well, who are these people? Well, John asked the question, who are these? He says, these are the ones who went through that great tribulation period where they are being hunted down and killed. It's called the church age. That is the age of tribulation. Remember, tribulation is not what God does to us. It's what man does to the church. And so in Acts, we must must tribulation enter into the kingdom of God does not mean we go through the seven years of God's wrath because the the other passage says that we, we would be saved from wrath through Him. And so we will not experience any of the wrath of God. And so here comes this large body of people Into heaven. And so these three events are kind of sandwiched into a very uh, narrow time frame, very narrow, almost simultaneously, we would say, but they are deliberate in their order. And so we're going to take the slice out of the middle and talk about those 144,000. And so let's jump forward now. We have gone through the trumpet judgments, we have uh, seen the rise of two witnesses who are going to make life miserable on top of the judgments of God, who are going to witness, we're going to have the 144,000 identified, they are going to be protected during that first half of the seven years of God's wrath. They are going to be protected because it says that anyone who has the mark of God, which is the name of God on their foreheads, are not going to experience those things. They are going to be divinely protected. But what they aren't divinely protected from is from the wickedness of men. They're divinely protected from the judgment of God, but not from the hatred and wickedness of men. And so we're going to see how that plays out. So we, we're introduced from, to some weird imagery that John had to explain to us in chapters 12 and 13, uh, and give us some historical context and help us identify some end-times bad guys. Um, And we've tried to do that as uh, plainly and directly as we can. And again, uh, I'm not looking for two men. Um, The Bible very clearly describes two nations that in coordinated fashion will rule the world uh, in the end times and implement the things that are described here. And again, we saw last week that we've had a large part of chapter 13 already accomplished for us. Uh, and the identification is very clear. So, what's the deal with 144,000? We interrupted our timeline right in the middle. We're at the halfway point of the seven years of God's wrath. It's supposed to last seven years. The, um, the beginning of that is a seven-year peace treaty between the man of sin and that he brokers it and between all the nations in Israel except for one nation uh, in the region and that will be the nation of Jordan. And we talked about why Jordan will be excluded from that because they are the only Arab nation that today already has a peace treaty with Israel. So they will not be involved in that. And Daniel says that there is one group of people that will be outside of the reach of the man of sin and it was the uh, Moab, uh, Edom, and the prominent people of Ammon. And that is all modern day Jordan. Uh, And so Daniel says that, there in Daniel, says that's the only place that won't be involved in this treaty with Israel will be the nation of Jordan. Okay, and so Edom and Moab are the southern parts of Jordan. Uh, The prominent people of Ammon would be the leadership of Jordan in the city of Ammon. And of course, that means that takes us to King Hussein. And we saw how his role and his father's role of making a peace treaty and honoring the peace treaty uh, is going on today. That they are still the place that everyone can go to in that region and find asylum. But the rule in Jordan is you don't cause problems here. (laughs) You want to stay here? You don't cause any problems. It doesn't matter if you're If you're this staunch Muslim, or staunch Christian, or staunch Jewish person, we don't care. Just don't fight. And this is a a country of peace. And it's tenuously maintained, but it is maintained. But remember, they are at peace with Israel. So, what's going on with the rest of Israel during these seven years? Well, it says that this treaty that they signed with the man of sin, that will involve all the nations around it, save for Jordan, um, will be violated at the halfway point. Three and a half years in, wink, wink, man of sin and the other nations with him uh, will violate it and they'll turn on Israel. They will violate the tabernacle, the temple uh, that has been rebuilt. The abomination causes desolation. They will be set up there where it doesn't belong. And Israel will realize oh, what have we done? What have we done? This isn't the Messiah. And I honestly believe that most Israelites will, will put their trust in the man of sin as if he was the Messiah. Hence the term Antichrist, which means just the opposite of the Messiah or the fake Messiah. That's what Antichrist really means, right? Is uh, not, not We often think of it in association with, with Jesus But it's really, here's the false Messiah that Israel will trust in. And they'll trust it in this treaty. So, the treaty is violated, and the the two witnesses are slaughtered, finally. And now it looks like um, things are uh, going south fast, and Israel notices it. But there's another group of people that have been attacked. And let's look at it in chapter 14. It says, Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. So do we know who this is? Real easy, right? We go right back to there. So the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. We're not talking about the first 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses. Alright? The John class, as they refer to it. And uh, I don't know why anyone would be counted Jehovah's Witness today because you can't be in the John class so you can't go to heaven. It's that simple. Um, The best the Jehovah's Witness can hope for is that he lives to see Jesus come and live on the earth uh, in his current form forever and ever. Um, Because if he dies, the Jehovah's Witness believes that that's the end of everything. There's no hope. There's nothing afterwards because the 144,000 are the only ones who are going to be in heaven with God. That makes heaven a pretty small place, doesn't it? Just 144,000 people are going to be there out of all of the population of the world over all time. So we have these Israelis. And it says, I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang as it were a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones... Who were not defiled with women, they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. We're going to stop right there. We're going to jump forward a little bit here, and um, but we have this description. We've already studied it some time ago. We were in chapter seven. But we have uh the identification of this group. But the problem is where they are right now. Where are they in this chapter? They're not on earth anymore. It says that it says the Lamb of God standing on Mount Zion, but this isn't necessarily on earth, but rather in the heavenly realms because we find them singing what song in what place. Um, We don't know the song yet because we haven't gotten there yet, but uh, it's a new song. And look where it's being sung. In verse 3, Before the throne... And who's there? Four living creatures, and who else? Uh, Is there 24 elders? Four living creatures and the elders. So where are we? We're in the same place we were back in chapter 4 and 5. Remember when when John was called up to heaven, and he says, come on up here, and what does he see? He sees the throne, he sees the temple of God in heaven, and he sees who? The four living creatures and the 24 elders... An active worship to God, singing the Old Testament song. Remember, one of the big things throughout Revelation is listen to what's going on in heaven. So there was an Old Testament song. And what was the song? Who can remember it? Okay, none of you can. Let's go to chapter 4. <laughs> chapter 4, we're going to sing the song. You ready? Ready? Holy, holy, there we go. We you know Oh, I know that song. It's holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then verse 11 You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. That was the song they were singing. The 24 elders and the four living creatures and, and the hosts of heaven were singing that song when John arrived there, historically past tense for him. And then the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, having just been sacrificed, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, arrives in heaven. And what happens? The song changes. For the first time, as far as we know, since creation, the song of heaven changed. And there was a new song introduced. Does that mean the old song wasn't, wasn't valuable? Or, no, it was just, now we have a new song in heaven. In this song's attention is where? It is squarely on Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And the the living creatures responded to that. And so now the singing isn't about God the Creator. Now the singing is about God the Redeemer. That He who has taken sinful men and recreated them and so we find this new song in heaven. And so when we come to Revelation 14, we say, well, here's a third song for heaven. Another new song. But not everybody sings it. That's weird. The twenty-four elder, the elders are there, and the, and the uh, creatures are there, but it says no one could sing the song except for the 144,000. This is a unique song. And I would contend that it's going to be presented to us a little bit later on. And what is so unique about this is that these are uniquely redeemed people. These 144,000 are not part of the church. They are not part of, of Israel, so to speak. They are unique. And let's go and see how unique this song is. I believe this song is described for us in chapter 15, verse 3. Here we go. It says, They sang... And by the way, um, they're described for us in chapter 15, verse 2, that there were those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of gold. So, they are in heaven, which means that they have been killed. (laughs) Correct? They have been slaughtered. The 144,000 really aren't going to survive much past... They're not going to be there for the bold judgment, so they're not going to survive much past the halfway point. And so these are those that have victory over him. Uh, That is that they didn't surrender to receive the mark or the name of the beast. Nor did they worship his image. Remember, the image was moving, talking pictures. So they're not worshiping that. They're not surrendering to any of that activity. They remain... uh, in pure following of Jesus Christ. And so, here's their song. But notice this description. It has two parts. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And this is what is unique about this song, is that they are in a time period where God's work with the church is complete, and really God's work with Israel is still under suspension, and yet we have these 144,000 obviously Jewish men, not Jewish, Israelite men, 12,000 were Jewish, Israelite men who have a relationship with Jesus Christ as their Redeemer. And so they have both the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb that they, they claim to. That, they, are, that they, they fulfill both in a very unique fashion. Now, that is not to say that Old Testament people did not trust in a future Messiah and His sacrifice. They did. They have part in Christ. And that is not to say that we don't have some connection to the uh, God of the Old Testament. We certainly do. But these people uniquely have a a different, uh, not better or worse, just different, redemptive work that has been done for them. They have been sealed before they even believed by the Holy Spirit in a very specific time frame for a very specific purpose that they could be preserved. And so um, they have their own song. They, they are the third category of people um, that, I, that I see of the redeemed. Uh, when we get to the passages about heaven... We're going to talk about the New Jerusalem. We're going to talk about the New Earth. And uh, we're going to distinguish them, that that some people are going to be residents of the New Jerusalem, while others are going to be residents of the New Earth. I believe there's there's sufficient textual support for that. Uh, The promises of God to Israel were one thing. The promises to the church were different. And and they're a different thing. Uh, The promises of God to these people are encompassing both and makes them unique. And so here's their song. It's a song of Moses and of the Lamb, verse 3. It says, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Trust just and true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you. O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. So what is unique about these people? Well, look at their song. What is it centered on? It is centered on the holy judgment of God that they uniquely in history witnessed firsthand eyewitnesses of it and lived. I say, well, wait a minute. You know, there were plenty of eyewitnesses to the flood, were there? Who eyewitnessed the flood? Did Noah eyewitness the flood? No, God called him into the ark. Come on in here. I, God was already in there. Come in here, Noah, before I let it loose. And contrary to all the little pictures and figurines, there weren't a bunch of windows on the ark. Okay? And there weren't no any heads sticking out of giraffes. None of that was there. It was all sealed up. They came in. They did never see it. Never. What was the... Prohibition for Lot and his family when they are leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, the other instance of God pouring out his wrath. Don't look back. Lot never saw it. His wife did. And she's not among the redeemed. These people are so unique because they can sing a song of something they have personally Live through, uniquely, I believe in all of history, they are going to see the wrath of God poured out on the earth, be preserved from it, and yet walk among it. And their song, necessarily, is about the marvelous works of God to judge the nations and look at the focus on His holiness, His holiness, His holiness. Great and marvelous. They have seen it, they have witnessed it, And I'm convinced that we're not going to even be witnessing it. But this group, uh, their song is about seeing the wrath of God in the trumpet judgments. Now, they're not going to see the bull judgment, the the last third of his wrath. But they have seen the first two-thirds, the first two woes, with one woe to go. And so we find them arriving in heaven, having been preserved in the midst of it with a unique relationship with God, a unique kind of deliverance where it was they were pre-sealed to it. And they were preserved in the midst of, instead of being saved from wrath, they were saved in the midst of wrath. And therefore, it's very unique. This is a unique group of people. And they have their own song in heaven. Now, One other element that we want to get into with these guys, and I'm going to be about done. My voice isn't going to last much longer. One other element. Um, I'm going to jump kind of in the middle. We're we're going to get to the trumpet judgments. I'm sorry, the bowl judgments that are coming. Uh, There are some angels with seven bowls, and, and they've arrived. And again, just like with the trumpet judgments, there's this, hold on a second, wait a minute. And we find, why is God ready to do this next level of of judgment? Remember, back in chapter 8, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. First time ever in heaven that we find silence. And we talk about the unrolling of the scroll. But do you remember what initiated God's activity of judgment, of wrath? What was it that initiated his activity back there in chapter 8? Anyone remember? The prayers of the saints that have been stored up. All those prayers, Lord God, don't forget this. If they don't get saved, don't you forget what they've done to your people, what they've said about your name, what they've done to your, to your church. Don't forget. Um, and, and bring judgment. We find the imprecatory psalms. If you go through some of those psalms, you know, break their children against the rocks and things like that. They're very disturbing to us in our modern sensibilities. But uh, they're necessary. And it says, the prayers of the saints are offered up before God and the immediate response of God to the prayers of the saints is the trumpet judgments. The seven trumpets begin to sound. Well, similarly, as we come to the bold judgments, something is going to move God to action. That's going to be kind of the judicial rightness of it, that he has a claim, a valid claim to judging people and we're going to pick up on it here in uh, where do I want to pick up on it verse, uh, let's pick up verse 12 here's the patience of the saints here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on yes says the spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them then I looked and behold a white cloud on the cloud sat one like the son of man having on his head a golden crown in his hand a sharp sickle and another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he sat on the cloud, thrust in his sickle on the earth, and earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also, having a sharp sickle, another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire, and he cried out with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, For her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. The blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. That's a whole lot of stuff, isn't it? So, right before these seven bold judgments are issued forth, we have... Again, a description, a kind of interruption. Uh, uh, Hold on a second. We have to demonstrate the virtue of what God is about to do. Um, When God pours out wrath, it is a scary, scary thing. Uh, Even to the saints, even to the redeemed, and to the agents of heaven. And I'm convinced that God is purposely demonstrating that this is necessary. These kind of acts are necessary. Uh, remember what he did before the flood. Remember what he did before Sodom and Gomorrah. He could have easily just done it, but no, he sent angels in to Sodom and to Lot and said, Do you have ten people? The city will be saved if you have ten people. By the way, I pray a lot of times, Lord, I know we are a wicked place, but there's at least ten of us here. <laughs> That love you, can you just have, keep mercy on us? So, God took measures uh, to demonstrate the rightness of His action. And similarly, here, He's going to take another measure to demonstrate the rightness of that action. And I'm convinced that somehow, wrapped up in this, we talk about these men arriving in heaven and seeing this new song and. And again, how did they get there? Well, we're going to look at martyrdom because that's how the two witnesses are going to... They're going to be martyred, resurrected, and head to heaven uh, and ascend. And similarly, I think these 144,000 are providing that further uh, mechanism by which God demonstrates uh, His rightness in doing these things that are about to be described as we get into chapter 15. They are horrific. They are simply horrific. They are. There's no way around it. You might say, well, how can a loving God do that? Well, that's exactly what all these passages are calling us to. This is what a just judge does. At some point, you throw the book at the guy. Right? At some point, you just say, this is a repeat offender. This is... I got some police officers. All right. Um, I'm missing Kelly here. I need the lawyer too. And we can get you all guys together. Um, At some point, a judge stops being just if he keeps having mercy and not penalty. And here, God is demonstrating. I think it's powerful that the song these individuals are singing are about, these are marvelous works. These are great works. This is His holiness. He has the right to do this and the nations need to worship before him and that's going to happen once he humbles them and brings them to their knees with these awful, bold judgments that are coming. And he has the right to do that. In fact, it would be evil for it not to happen. Because men have done such wickedness that it would be evil God would be an evil judge, an unfair judge, not to do this. Um, they're, they're, whenever a judge is confronted with a decision, he has two parties there, right? He has the offender and he has the victim. And both of them get to speak their piece. And we trust that justice is um, doing what is right by the victim uh, and sprinkling it with some mercy for, for the possibility that this person is redeemable, that they could be recovered out of this evil that they have perpetrated. But we recognize that at some point, the perpetrator is beyond that. They are beyond reclamation from the judicial system anyway. That's why we still go to the jail ministry is because from God's perspective, they're still reclaimable. But not from our judicial system. We would say, how can this judge keep letting these people out and perpetrating these acts again and again and again and slaughtering these people? How many DWI deaths do we need by repeat offenders, right? At some point, we have to point the figure somewhere else than just the repeat offenders, but who's putting them out in the streets? There is a lack of justice. And God, at some point, the mercy and the grace of this age must come to a close. That when it continues to be rejected and we continue to get evil and and worse, that at some point, just being a good judge requires him to penalize wickedness. And that takes harsh form sometimes. And here it is. The outpouring. So we find these 144,000 have a job. They were, they were working in this period of time, testifying of Jesus Christ, following Him wherever He would lead them, and we find them declaring the truth to certainly the other Israelites who instead put their trust in, uh, in the man of sin and in the seven-year treaty. Um, no one would listen. No one would listen. And in fact, when we get into the bold judgments, one of the things we're going to see repeated over and over again is that still they did not repent. They did not repent. And we're going to talk next week about the angel declaring the gospel. And no one responds. They don't respond to 144,000. They don't respond to the two witnesses, at least not in repentance. They don't respond to who, even an angel coming in directly telling them the gospel, they still don't respond. They don't respond to God's wrath. Um, can we just conclude that these people are reprobate? They will not repent. And thus, they are deserving of the judgment that they are receiving. And the nations are getting what they rightly have earned. And there cannot be any of this statement that, oh, God isn't loving. God is loving. You know why? Because for a couple thousand years now, He has offered salvation to all men. He has offered redemption. He has offered deliverance. And that, everyone seems to forget... They talk about God and the acts going on on earth. How can God let little children do this? Well, God's not, or die. Um, God's not doing that, by the way, in this age. In the age to come, in the seven years, He will be. There will be significant amounts of death by the hand of God. But that's not what's happening today. We're the ones doing that to each other. Okay? You might say, well, God, why is God allowing that? God is allowing that because he is gracious. But there is an end to that. Because justice demands that at some point mercy stops and there is time for penalty. Otherwise, he's not just. He's not a good judge. And that is what we wait for. So the 144,000 have a key role in this midpoint and really set the stage because of men's rejection of them, their message, and of their Savior. Um, not only uh, the nations, but, but Israel themselves didn't listen. And now they're off the scene. They're in heaven. They're singing at the throne uh, their song. And uh, God is ready to pour out the last of it, the seven bowls. And we're going to get into those in two weeks. Um, uh, no, we're not. In three weeks. No, we're not going to do it then either. Am I going to do it in three weeks? Yes, in three weeks, we will, I'll still be here. <laughs> well, I might still be here. The Lord might come, and I won't be here. So, um, the plan is, in three weeks, we'll be getting to that. Next week, we'll be talking about the balance of chapter 14. Uh, then we have the baccalaureate service. Then we'll be handling uh, the introduction to the bold judgments and looking at them and their purpose, not only to uh, exercise God's wrath against men, but also to set the stage for the battle of Armageddon. That we hear so much about, but we're going to try to clarify that one up a little bit too. Okay? Let's have our prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its consistency, that we can trust in it, that it is plain, and Lord, we uh, know that we live in a very precious time a time when men can still turn, that the that Spirit still strives with us to convince us and convict us of sin and of your righteousness and of a very potent judgment to come should we reject it and so Lord we pray that we might be ambassadors of that message wherever you lead us uh, that we might uh, be of the sort that we see in the 144,000 that we who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit might also share in this time as they will in their time knowing that our time is short that the day of decision is upon us. And Lord, we pray that uh, you might help me come to know you as Savior and Lord in the days and weeks to come. And Lord, we uh, do thank you that you are attentive to our prayers and that you see that when there's need for judgment that you are ready to exercise it as you have promised. We thank you for the rightness of it. Again, Lord, we pray that we might Be careful be harmless as doves but wise as serpents in this age as we serve you and yet anticipate your coming as we see men rejecting you more and more. So give us courage and faithfulness these days. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.